Hi, Phyllis. How are you? Well, I'm not doing very well. Well, what's the matter? Things just aren't going the way I thought they would. Well, what do you mean? I just don't think this is going to work out. All he does is eat and sleep. Well, that sounds like Frank. He always has to get in my face, and his breath stinks. And then there's the sneaking out at night. He's even stealing the neighbor's newspaper. Oh, it sounds like you guys may need some professional help. I don't know. My neighbor likes him well enough. Maybe she should just take him. What? I just want to get rid of that dog. Well, you shouldn't call him a dog. My husband has bad breath too, but marriage has struggles. Husband? Ginger, I'm talking about Buster, our new puppy. Oh, for Pete's sake! Hey, good morning. In the world of marriage research as to which marriages are going to make it, which marriage is not going to, and how to deal with marriages in trouble, John Gottman is a rock star. He is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of Washington. And for years, he has made a study of why marriages succeed and why marriages fail. But he did something revolutionary years ago that has made him, well, let's just put it this way, other experts beat a path to his door. Many years ago, he decided he was going to stop taking the conclusions that were written by other experts. He was going to move everything we knew about marriage and family therapy off the table, and he was going to start from scratch and do absolutely nothing but research, analyze, and observe couples and draw conclusions from, from, his, from his analysis. And through the years, he, he looked at thousands of couples. What they would do, they would invite them in for a weekend, leave them in an apartment, and they would watch them, much like the voyeuristic tendencies of America today. But in this case, they were doing it under the umbrella of scientific research. Now, what really made Dr. Gottman come to prominence, and this is the reason why he's been on just about every talk show you can imagine, Oprah and everything, people just love to listen to him, is because what he determined very early on was that it could be predicted with almost somewhere between 93 and 94% accuracy which couples were going to make it and which couples were going to divorce. Now, let me tell you what really made his analysis something that everybody perked up and listened to. Most of the analysis of this type as to which marriages were going to make it or not make it were based on samplings taken from couples who had come in for counseling. So in other words, these couples were already in trouble. That's what most of the analysis was based upon. What Dr. Gottman did was he looked at couples who weren't in trouble. He looked at newlyweds. He looked at couples in the very earliest stage of marriage who had no idea that they were in trouble. He analyzed them and determined that he could tell between 93 and 94% which couples were going to make it and which couples wouldn't. Now, it's interesting when you start pulling his analysis apart and looking at why he says couples make it and why couples don't make it. Well, for, for one thing, he discovered that couples who made it had many more positive interactions or positive communications than negative. In other words, the gap was wide. It wasn't like a graded spectrum. It was a very wide spectrum. Couples that weren't going to make it were about one to one, about one negative for every one positive. And he wasn't just listening for words. They were watching them scientifically and, and, and very technologically, not just to listen to words, but facial expressions and even micro expressions. They were measuring expressions sometimes that were as brief as one one twenty-fifth of a second. And what, they, what, what Dr. Gottman found was the couples that were going to make it, even in a conflict, there was going to be five to one positive versus negative. There would be five affirming things to every one negative thing. And couples that weren't going to make it, it was pretty even, almost one to one. He also discovered...
Couples that made it, the couples that were going to be successful, tended to start arguments differently than the other couples. They tended to start conflicts on a positive note. They stayed on the subject. They didn't wander. They didn't point fingers and say, it's your fault. They would start by saying, we have a problem. Would you help me? They would ask instead of blame. He also noted that couples that made it tended to put repair attempts, his word, or his expression, repair attempts in a conflict. In other words, if you can imagine a conflict on a graph and and you're going in a negative direction, you're going in a downward direction, at some point, one person in a healthy marriage is going to try to put the brakes on, at least take the foot off the accelerator, and there'll be just a little uptick of emotion. Maybe it would be an apology, maybe it would be an understanding statement, maybe it would be something that tried to get into the mind of the other person and see it from their perspective, but there would be a repair attempt. And we all know what that's like. You're in a conflict, you're thinking, why am I fighting with the person I love the most in the world? And we try to do something to to soften it, to get out of it. What he noticed that was in healthy couples, that when somebody made a repair attempt, the other person responded. In other words, instead of trying to keep the argument going in a healthy marriage, when somebody made a repair attempt, the other person said, okay, I'm going with you. You're, you're starting to drive this in a positive direction. I'm right there with you. I'm going with you. Couples that weren't going to make it, when somebody made a, po- a repair attempt, the other person just kept going down. Then he noticed that healthy couples tended to see their conflicts as temporary and manageable, whereas unhealthy couples tended to look at their problems as ongoing and permanent. And my personal favorite out of all of those, and, and I think this is kind of getting down to the bottom line, and this, this is something that means a lot to me, and I think it should mean a lot to you if you're married or if you ever you know, want to be married. I know that this, is, this mess is going to catch a lot of you in circumstances. Some of you, you know, you're married and you're happily married. Some of you are married, wish you weren't married. Some of you not married, wish you were married. Some of you never been married, and after this series, you're not sure you ever want to be married. Um, <laughs> I know this is going to catch in a lot of places, but, but here's the thing. Here's what every couple needs to understand, that the health of your marriage is going to depend upon, just like the health of a business or any kind of partnership, the health of your marriage is going to depend on deposits. Somebody needs to make a deposit into this account. If you make more withdrawals than you have deposits, there's going to be an overdraft. And beyond that, you risk bankruptcy. And this is the thing. See, I think a lot of us here today the last thing we want is a bankruptcy in our marriage. We don't want our marriage to fail. And so, you know, if you're, if you're in debt up to your eyeballs and you're risking bankruptcy, you got to do something about that. And, and people tend to react to that in one of two ways. If people are getting close to bankruptcy, there are smart people who will stop borrowing. They will start living a different lifestyle. They will cut back. They'll start putting deposits into the bank because they're saying, we don't want to go bankrupt. On the other hand, there are people of no character who will say, you know what? I see bankruptcy coming. I'm just going to keep borrowing and push it as far as I can push it, and then I'll just declare bankruptcy. A lot of people are facing marriage that way. They know their marriage is in trouble, but they're just saying, I'm going to just push this as long as I can, then we'll declare bankruptcy, and I'll get somebody new. In, in marriages that make it, there are far more deposits than withdrawals. Now, all of us, even in the healthiest of marriages, all of us are going to make some withdrawals. But the important thing is when we make withdrawals, for our partner to understand that is not our nature. That is, in, in what Dr. Gottman found, this, I thought this was really interesting, is that in healthy couples, in couples where there are far more deposits than withdrawals, oftentimes, a person in a marriage would tend to interpret a negative statement as neutral. Why? Because that other person is always making deposits. 
And so he discovered that oftentimes in a healthy marriage, a person could hear their partner say something that was negative, and they will process it and and interpret it as a neutral statement. Whereas in an unhealthy marriage, he determined that there were people who could hear a neutral statement, and they would interpret it as negative. Why? Because their partner makes so many stinking withdrawals. Well, I don't know what Dr. Gottman's religious views are. I don't know what his spirituality is. But he might be interested to know that he's just gotten exactly to where Jesus took us many years ago. See, if a marriage is in trouble, it's not for complex reasons. It's for very simple things. And I bet you, when you just heard Dr. Gottman's analysis, there's some of you more cynical out there who are saying, well, duh. You know, all that money into research, I could have told him those things. And most of us could have, right? I mean, it's good to have it, you know, codified for us. But I think we look at that and we say, I didn't rocket science. I don't have to have a PhD to understand that. See, when marriages are in trouble, this is something that we really, really need to get, drill down and get because I think a lot of us don't get this. It ain't complicated. Now, the situation may be complex, but if our marriages get in trouble, they didn't get in trouble for complicated reasons. They got in trouble really for one reason. I want to take you now to the words of Jesus and hang with me because, you know, work with me because at first you're going to wonder where in the world am I going with this? But if you'll just stay with me, you'll see, that you'll see how Jesus drilled down to one thing. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees, who were the most religious people and hated Jesus, the most religious people of Jesus' day, they tried to trap Jesus. Let me read their question. This was, anybody ever ask you a trick question? You can't answer it one way, or you can't be right. Whichever way you answer it, you're going to be wrong. Pharisees wanted to do this with Jesus because he was upsetting their apple cart and he was drawing crowds and they were losing influence and power. So what they always wanted to do was ask him a question where he, where part of his group would fall away. Okay, here we go. Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Well, man, we could ask that question in 2010, couldn't we? Because one out of two marriages in America end in divorce, and people get divorced for lots of reasons. So they were, they were going to Jesus and say, you know, you say you came from God, Give us a God answer to this. Now, a little context. This is probably more than you want to know. But there were experts in Jesus' day, just like there were experts in our day. And there were two leading rabbis who were voluminous in their writings and teachings about divorce. And they had opposite views. All this was based on something that Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And basically what Moses said was that if a man found uncleanness in his wife, and that's a strange word, but he found uncleanness in his wife, that he could give her a certificate of divorce. In other words, he could give her an official divorce statement. Now, I think that all of us understand that when he talked about uncleanness, he wasn't talking about hygiene. He was talking about moral uncleanness. It was a a metaphor that if something, the other person did something immoral, that the wounded partner, partner could offer a certificate of divorce. Now, there was a conservative rabbi whose name was Shammai, more than you want to know, not the whale in, or not in, the whale in Florida, just that Shammai was his name. Okay, is that Shamu? I guess I got it wrong. In any event, this, this rabbi taught that, the, that when Moses said uncleanness, he just meant adultery. That's all he meant. That's all he was talking about. I think personally, Dr. Shammai was right. On the other hand, there was this rabbi named Hillel, who was much more liberal and very popular, as you can imagine. And Hillel, and by the way, this is a very male-dominated culture here. Hillel taught that uncleanness, well, he was sort of like some of our jurists in America that sort of make up the laws they go along. Hillel taught that 
And cleanness could be anything. And I promise you, I'm not, I'm, I'm not freelancing here. I'm telling you history. He determined that if a, a woman insulted her mother-in-law, her husband could give her a certificate of divorce. That if a woman burned dinner or burned the toast, he could give her a certificate of divorce. You're out of here. You burn breakfast. And then it got so liberal that another rabbi came along and he built on Hillel's teachings and he simply said, and I'm going to read this quote, if any man saw a woman handsomer than his own wife, he might put his away because it is said in the law, if she find not favor in his eyes. Well, now we are at 2010 America. I mean, if a guy just saw any baby thought was hotter than his, he could say, oh, Moses said, you're out of here. Here's Here's your certificate. And I got God behind this. And if you think I'm kidding, most of us will know the name Josephus. He was a great historian. Josephus said, and I'm going to quote again, about this time I put away my wife who had borne me three children, not being pleased with her manners. I don't know if it was table manners or what, but here's the great historian Josephus. He got a a wife who bore him three kids. Didn't like the way she conducted herself. You're out of here, babe. Now, do you see why the Pharisees came and asked Jesus this question? Because instantly if Jesus said, well, I side with Dr. You know, Shammel, then, Shammai, then all the followers of Hillel are going to say, we're not going to listen to you anymore. And if he signed it with Dr. Hillel, then followers of Shammai aren't going to listen to him anymore. And they would have gotten Jesus in a political quagmire, and Jesus always avoided that kind of junk. And you know what? And, and, and I think I taught you this last year in our series, Love Songs. Instead of answering their question, Jesus just went to design. He just said, God didn't want divorce in the first place. He put a man and a woman, God put a man and a woman together, and he intended for them to be together for life. Well, these Pharisees who really didn't give a rip about whatever answer Jesus gave, they weren't going to stop. So they pressed it in verse 7. They said, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Now, this is not necessarily contributory to my sermon, but I guess you're probably interested in that question as well. I mean, why did Moses say you could give your wife a certificate of divorce? Let me try to answer the question real, real quickly. In those days, there wasn't a great deal of law. They were, they were traveling through the wilderness, and things got very lax and very loose. The people had been in Egypt for 400 years. They had picked up a lot of the customs, a lot of the sexual mores, and there were a lot of guys that would just basically tell their wives, you're out of here. And all of a sudden, here's a woman who was basically on the streets with no income, and worse yet, she had no legal status. She wasn't really married because her husband had kicked her out, but on the other hand, she wasn't really single because she had been married. And Moses knew that this was a recipe for disaster. It was a recipe for cultural implosion, such as we're feeling in America today. And so Moses said, all right, we're going to at least codify this thing. If you find something wrong, if you find uncleanness in your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce so that if she she wanted to get into another marriage, she could say, I have a certificate of divorce. I am a single person. So the Pharisees have asked Jesus this question. They fully know the history that I've just given you. So Jesus is going to drill down here, and he's going to bring us to the point that you and I need to see today more than anything else. He said in verse 8, Moses permitted. Notice he didn't suggest it. Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. If a marriage is in trouble today, it's because somebody has a hard heart. Now, I'm so quick to say this because I know that many of you have been through a divorce. Guys, I'm not saying everybody who's been through a divorce has a hard heart. I know enough out of life to know the opposite is often true. But you would have to agree with me that somebody had a hard heart. Your heart may have been tender. You may have done anything 
to put that, keep that marriage together. But it's a fact, somebody had a hard heart. Any marriage that's in trouble, somebody has a hard heart. And you know what? That's what, that's what Dr. Gottman was finding. He was just saying, you know, people who have a hard heart, you can pretty well tell early on if they have a selfish hard heart, things are not going to end well unless something happens. In fact, just to go to Dr. Gottman one final time this morning, in all of his research, he said the one thing that caused more problems than anything else was contempt. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said hard heart. Dr. Gottman said contempt. Somebody decided to block the other person out and not be vulnerable. And I, I tell people this all the time. I've never learned to love without risking. You tell me how to love without risking, and I'll hear you. When I don't care, then losing something isn't important. But the moment I set my heart on something, I don't know how to love. I don't know how to be in love with a woman without risking. I don't know how to have children without risking. I don't know how to love a church without risking. I don't know how to love God without risking. Anytime I love, I risk. I put my heart out there. But that's the very thing that leads to deep relationships when we love enough to risk. Now, I'm going to get on my horse and ride because I now have about 15, 17 minutes to give you eight points. If your marriage is on the brink today, I mean, some of you are standing over the precipice looking into the darkness. Others of you, you don't see divorce happening today, but you're scared because you're looking down the road and you're saying things like, if we keep going like we're going today, it's not going to end well. If you're in any of those places today, and even if you're in a safe place, this, this is going to be confirming for you. I want to give you eight things you can do to turn your marriage around. Now, the moment I hear a list of eight things, I almost check out. But could I just tell you this? These are going to like, they're going to tag onto each other. And they're, they're, they're natural. They're going to sync up with each other. Once you start down this trail, you're going to come to all these places, okay? So uh, let me give you these. And if you want to take these down, you can. But let me just start with number one. It often starts with one person who's willing to try. Oh, that's so important to me because I've sat in counseling so many hundreds of times in my office and I've seen two people that are like playing a game of chicken with each other. They both know the marriage is in trouble, but they're saying, I don't know that I'm going to try because I don't think he's going to try. I don't know if I'm going to try because I don't know if she's going to try. I don't know if he can change. I don't think he can change. See, and so a lot of times I've watched people bluff themselves out of a successful marriage because they're looking across the table saying, I don't see any possibility of change. Now, here's the thing, because some of you are going to be listening to this talk today like I've heard just from last night, and, and two of you are going to hear this. Husband and wife are going to hear this talk, and you're going to walk out of here, and you, can say, you both say to each other, hey, we're going to start over again. Let me just tell you this. If, if life has taught me anything in 33 years of pastoring, you show me a man and a woman who will both try, baby, it's a done deal. It's going to happen. I can just, you can just put it right there on the table. You show me a man and a woman who are both willing to do these things, and your marriage can be standing over the abyss looking into the pit, and I promise you it can turn around and race back to hell so fast it'll make your head swim if both will try. That's just how powerful God is and following him is. But I'm, 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 I wasn't born yesterday. I was born at night, but not last night. And I understand clearly for a lot of you, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to say, Mark, I get this, but my husband won't get it. Mark, I get this, but my wife won't get it. I want to just tell you this. I've been amazed. I mean, it has blown my mind to see what happens oftentimes if just one person will try. Remember, could I, this is one of the most important things I'm going to say on stage this morning. Remember, you may be alone, but you're not one. 
you're not one. You may be alone in your, or you may be just one person. Let's flip that. You may just be one person in the marriage, but you're not alone because God is going to be with you. God is going to help you. Number two, commit your heart to the truth that with all things God, uh, with God, all things are possible. See, a lot of people give up because they just don't think it's possible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, quickly, I want to be honest with you. That doesn't mean that's a guarantee that your partner is going to change because their free will is involved and God will not force someone to change their, their free will. But I can say this to you. With God, all things are possible. And you didn't get to where you are because of an accident. A bad plan got you here and a good plan can get you out. And so with God, you have to say, I'm going to put my confidence in God that if I do things his way, God will help me. And that is, I can guarantee you that last thing. I can guarantee you that God will help you. Number three, take responsibility for and repent of your own failings. Now, it can very well be your husband is responsible for 90% of your problem. But hear me, there are no perfect people. This is going to come as a shock to some of you. I should have asked you just to hold on to something before I made that comment. There are no perfect people, including you and me. So if your marriage is in trouble, your partner may be responsible for the vast majority of it, but my gut is... You've got some responsibility too. And you know, I think there's something healthy when we stand before God in prayer or, sit or kneel before God in prayer and we say, God, I, I know that my wife is driving me crazy. I know that my husband is off the rails here. But God, I made some contributions to that. If a hard heart is what gets marriages in trouble, a softening heart, even if the other person won't soften their heart, a softening heart has power with God. I'm going to qualify this next one because some of you, now here's the thing. For those of you who've been in church for a long time, you're going to have trouble getting this better than some of you who've just come to God, okay? Let God be God in your marriage. When marriages are in trouble, let's just tell it like it is. They're in trouble because somebody wants to be God. Somebody wants to make up the rules. Somebody wants to rule. Usually it's both people. And, and, the, and the thing about this, what I've discovered is that Christian people are really, really talented at this. They are talented at wanting to be God and then leveraging God to like juice up their point of view. By the way, first of all, could we just say this? You and I cannot have successful marriages without bringing God into it. I mean, this, this, these statistics I'm going to give you, or these, these words I'm going to give you, they're not new. They've been around for a long time. You know right now one out of two marriages ends in divorce. Second marriages, divorce is at a high rate. Third marriage is even higher. Now, think about this. Couples who pray together every day, couples who read the Bible together every day, couples who worship together, Divorce at this rate. You ready? Now, these are people who read the Bible together every day, pray together every day, worship together. One, less than one, out of 200. Hey, do you remember when your grandmother had the sign on the wall that said the family that prays together stays together? And grandma was hitting the ball out of the park. She was right. See, a lot of us, the reason why marriage is in trouble, you know, we don't pray with each other. By the way, it's hard to be hard-hearted towards somebody that you're holding in your arms and asking God to help them. You know, it's, it's hard to fight with someone who's in the word of God every day and letting God's word rain down with all of its grace and peace on you. See, let God be God. 
But now let me take this to a, a, a place where for some of us, as I said, some of us who are Christians, we're really good at bypassing this. We say, oh, I pray and I read my Bible. But the problem is we're not really letting God be God because the truth of the matter is we're treating our mate badly and we may even have a religious reason for it. Let's go to the Word of God. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, this is one of the most important verses in the Bible to me, and I think you'll see why when I get through. You husbands must give honor to your wives. That means value. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Now, first of all, is God talking to a spiritual person or a non-spiritual person? Is he talking to a pagan or is he talking to a Christian? He's talking clearly to a Christian because he said you pray. So here's what I take from that verse. You know, it's no secret, not in every case, it may not be in your home, but in most cases, a man is going to be physically stronger than his wife. And, and, and so because of that, sometimes guys, because they may have a strong personality, strong physique, they can basically leverage that to intimidate their wives. And God is saying, fellow, before you want to do that, you might want to think about the fact that you might be a little bit stronger than your wife, but really when it gets down to it, you two are equal partners and you both belong to me. And God is saying, I'm a whole lot stronger than you are. And what God is saying to me, look, Mark, you need to think about this. You might be physically stronger than Mary Alice, but she's my daughter, and I'm watching the way you treat my daughter. And if you don't treat her right, and if you don't meet her needs, next time you come and ask me for help, I'm going to say, excuse me, I didn't get that. Would you say that again? Sorry, Mark, there's a lot of static online between earth and heaven. I just couldn't hear you. Baby, I can't afford that. I mean, that makes me want to just go to Mary Alice and say, what good thing can I do for you? Now, for some of you here, and I know that this is not our style here at New Spring, but I have run into women through the years that, like, they, they carry around a 96-pound Bible, you know? They like, and God bless Bible studies, and they've been to all the studies, and they, they've, they've just got God all over. They've got verses for everything. <laughs> the only problem is they treat their husbands like dogs, like the video. But the cool thing is they have God behind them. And they'll say things like, I just want my husband to be the spiritual leader of the family. What they mean is, I want him to do what I want him to do. And I got God behind me. God is the wind in my sails. Bless God. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) I have a verse for you ladies. I don't think we have any here at New Spring, but in case we do, I have a verse for you ladies that you have not found in your Bible study yet, okay? Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, in the same way, a wife who speaks with God in a way that shows a lack of respect for the authority of her husband dishonors her husband, worse, she dishonors herself. Now, how freaky is that? I mean, here is a woman who's talking with God, and just in the way she talks to God, she shows disrespect for her husband, and God is saying, you're not getting through, babe. I don't care what you know. I don't know where you've been. I don't, I don't care who you listen to. I just want you to know if you're treating your husband with disrespect, I've checked out. God has left the building. Do you see why I'm saying if you want a healthy marriage, you've got to let God be God? I mean, if God is God, I'm going to treat Mary Alice with love. I'm going to put her first. If God has got in our marriage, and she does, Mary Alice is going to treat me with respect. But not because I deserve it 
She does deserve love. I'm sure I don't deserve respect. But because God is God, and God is saying this is how a marriage is supposed to work. And it doesn't say love her when she deserves it. If, you're, if God is your God, you will love her because you, sit, you do this for God. If God is your God, you will respect your husband because God says respect your husband. Just because God is God of your life. And if that's not happening, don't think just because you go to a lot of church, listen to a lot of sermons, read your Bible a lot, that it's getting you anywhere. I want to move on. Number five, bury the past. A few moments ago, I said, I don't know how to love without risking. Could I tell you this? I don't know how to stay in love without forgiving. You know, the old joke is two guys were talking to each other, and one said, you know, every time we get into a fight, my wife gets historical. And his friend said, don't you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. She just brings up everything I've ever done. (laughs) Let me read a verse to us. Here's how you forgive in marriage. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, it says, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Okay, somebody's saying, excuse me, and, and this is one of the questions I get a lot after a message like this. Anytime I'm, I speak on forgiveness, somebody's going to say, let me tell you what happened to me, as if I get, I get a pass. I mean, when, when God said forgive, God didn't see anything like I've been through yet, Okay. So, excuse me, Mark, let me tell you my story, and then I'm sure when I get through, then I won't have to forgive. And it could be that you're saying, okay, be kind to my husband, be tenderhearted with with him, and surely you don't mean forgive him, or you don't mean forgive her. Well, God knew we were going to do that, so he finished the verse for us. Let's read it. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven us. How did God forgive you? Did he say, I'm going to forgive you for that, but not this? Did God say, okay, you got a quota. You hit that 500 sin, that's it. No more, no more grace. Did God say, I'm going to forgive you all your sins up to April of 2010. After April 2010, you're on your own. Or does God say, you just done that one too many times? Man, when I read the Bible, the Bible says God loves us unconditionally and he forgives us. And the Bible says not only does he forgive, he forgets. He moves, he moves on so that we can move on. You know, some of you, your marriages could be revolutionized today if you would move on from stuff that happened in the past and not dredge it up. Last night I told this story. It's a crazy story. My dad told it for years in his ministry, and I've told it. But I promise you, it is as true as the day is long. I grew up on the south side of Fort Worth, basically on the border between the city and the country. We were out, had a little bit of land. When I was a little kid, I wanted to have some chickens. And my uncle, who was a farmer in South Texas, gave me some chickens. I don't know how my parents felt about that, but you know how uncles and aunts can be sometimes. Before long, I had a bunch of chickens out there in the backyard, took care of them every day. But I went out there one day, and one of my chickens was dead. And my dad looked at the chicken, and he kind of looked over the chicken's body, and he, he saw the, the marks in, in the chicken, he said, we have an opossum. Now, I should tell you, I had a dog named Scotty. I got Scotty when I was three, and, and he died when I was 16. So I had him just about all the time I was growing up. Scotty was about this big around, and he had legs that were about this long. I, my mother heard the message last night and brought a picture. I would not have had a picture. I don't know if the camera can get in on this or not, but this is my dog, Scotty. 
And, and you should understand, he was gentle as he could be with children. I mean, he, he just, children could pull his hair and pull his ear stuff. He was just as gentle as he could be, but he never saw a dog he couldn't whip, or at least he didn't think he could. I promise you one night, I saw him take on a German shepherd and a collie, and he was cut up and beat up, but both those other dogs were running the last time I saw him. That was Scotty. So one night, we, we, were, we, we heard a lot of noise out there, and Dad woke me up about 3 or 4 in the morning. He said, well, that, that opossum is out there right now, because you could hear the hens and, and out there screaming. And, and so Dad and I got dressed real quickly, went out to the, to the back of the place, and took Scotty with us. And Dad said to Scotty, sick him. Now, usually, that's an old term. Most of you don't know. It just means go get him, dog. And uh, usually, if it's another dog, Scotty didn't need it. But, I mean, this time, Scotty couldn't see what was in the dark. He knew something bad was going down. He just wasn't anxious to stick his nose in there and find out what it was. So I remember, like yesterday, my dad picked him up by the fur on his back and just threw him in there. (laughs) And as we say in Texas, he went to town. (laughs) I mean, you could hear bones crackling. I mean, he, he just made short work of that opossum. Man, we like to never got the carcass of that opossum away from him. I mean, we did bait and switch. We did everything we could to get a boy. Finally, I don't remember how we did it, but we got what was left of that opossum away, and Dad and I took him out in the garden and buried him. And the next morning at breakfast, our kitchen went, was right by the back door. We looked out, and there was Scotty proudly. <laughs> standing over the body of that opossum. And when he saw that he had an audience, he killed him all over again. <laughs> I guess he thought it happened in the dark. We should see it in the daylight. <laughs> and he ran around the yard, shook it. I mean, parts is parts. I mean, parts were flying around. Finally got the opossum away. What was left from Scotty, we buried it again. The next morning, guess what? There he was. And he did that until there was nothing left. And that is what some of you are doing in your marriage. You're digging it up, and you're killing it all over again, and it's dead, and it's been dead for a long time. And God is saying, look, move on, move on, forgive. You've been forgiven, you forgive. Okay, I'm out of time. I got to give you two real, three, three, my goodness, three real fast. Number six, choose blessing over the curse. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole world fell under a curse. What does Genesis chapter three say? God says, Genesis three sixteen, you will desire to control your husband, God said to Eve, and he will rule over you. Now, the battle of the sexes, you say that's natural. No, it's part of a curse. Now, as God followers, the moment you accept Jesus Christ, we still live in a cursed world, but we're not under a curse anymore. Christ has been made a curse on the cross, and because of that, we don't live cursed lives, and God gives us through Christ a way to get out from under living under the curse. And the Bible tells it worse like this, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife must respect her husband. If you're living under the curse, you've got the battle of the sexes going on. If you're a God follower, stop it, start living under blessing. In fact, here's what the Bible says. This is in Deuteronomy 30. He said, I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. And now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life. Husbands and wives, you and I, especially God followers, we have a choice to make. We can either live under the curse and we can battle each other out, or we can live under blessing and a husband can love his wife and a wife can respect her husband and they can live as though they're in heaven and not in the earth that's being cursed. Number seven, this one's beautiful. I wish I had time to leverage it, but I think you'll get the point real easily. Treat your partner 
as though he or she is everything you want them to be. You say, Mark, when he changes, then I'll change. Hey, what if you were to change, and even if he didn't? What if you, were start, what if you started treating him the way he was, as though he were everything you want him to be? What if you started treating her? You say, Mark, she doesn't respect me. But what if you started treating her like she did? You say, Mark, she says cutting things to me. But what if instead you did repair attempts? What if you just started treating her as though she were the wife you wanted to be? Ladies and gentlemen, people react. People respond. I mean, who knows? We could be, oh boy, this is worth driving here for. We could be more of the problem than we think we are. And if we start treating the other person as though they were everything we want them to be, that part of us that's creating the problem, all of a sudden that goes off the table and the other person's free to react to us. Number eight, I close with this, start over. If you, if you back me against the wall tonight and said, Mark, or this morning, what do you love most about God? I could, I'd tell you so quickly. What I love most about God is he's the only one who will truly let you start over. Some of you here today, you say, Mark, we've made a mess of things. Well, praise God, you're in a place of new beginnings. You have a God who says, just let the past be the past. Jesus died for your sins. The blood that came out of his body made, paid for your forgiveness. And with the grace of God, start new, start fresh. Raise your expectations, but be patient. Don't expect it to happen overnight. Let those be your brackets. I'm going to expect great things with God, and I'm going to wait for God to work and move in my life and start over and watch what God does. I'm not a smart man, but I've had 33 years of leading churches and watching God do miracles in broken families and marriages on the brink, and he can do it for you if you're there today. Thanks for being here, and thanks for listening.